I just want to say now at the beginning of the episode, uh, Leechfest does not condone the consumption of any illicit narcotics or drugs or opium. Don't, don't, don't do drugs. Hi, and welcome to Leechfest. Grab a pipe and settle down in the beanbag chair and don't inhale too much. Welcome to Leechfest. I'm Mia. And I'm Salem. And today we're going to be talking about opium. Not opiates, because that's a whole other thing. Opium. The OG. There's a lot of chemistry in how it works, how it grew to dominate trade and 19th century drug policy, and how it has almost stopped being relevant today. But before we do all of that, how have you been? Um, I've been okay. I feel like I never really have a lot to say in this part, because I just go to school. <laughs> but you got new skates. I got new skates, we're, yeah, that's we're, true. We're, we've gone, we podcasted for so long now that we're back in skating yeah, season. Yeah. Um, yeah, I got new skates. For those of you who like know anything about skating, you got the Moxie Pamphor skates, which are very good for park skating. So I'm really excited. Um, incidentally, it got like suddenly really cold, like the day that I got yeah. the skates. So I actually haven't tried them yet, but um, I'm very excited to try them. How have you been? I've been good. A lot of secret projects cooking in the old YouTube machine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't really have much else to say. Like, same as always, I make videos. Yeah. Um, one thing happened since the last time we recorded. We went to London. We did went to London. We did we, went we to did London. We did went to London. We did went to and London. We met, we, we met some other YouTubers. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to out, out or dox anyone here, but we met some of the funny YouTubers. Content creators. We're not going to name, name drop, yeah. Uh, we are going to name drop the... <laughs> Tamadura, who escaped from the enclosure, who I am obsessed with. The anteater. Yeah. Yeah. Because we were walking around like a rainforest enclosure in the London Zoo. Yeah. And one of them just like snuck out. Made it its escape. S- squeeze out. But we both did that. Not what do you just mean? me. What do you mean? We both went to London. That's not- what I said. Okay. We well, both went oh, to yeah. London. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, it was fun. Yeah, it was super fun. We went to the London Zoo. We went mm-hmm. to the Science Museum. And I don't know if yes. if you all haven't been and you get a chance to go, definitely go. They have a medical, mm-hmm. like a medical floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's dedicated to medical history. And it was really, really cool. Yeah. Um, they have a lot of cool exhibits. They have a psychiatry exhibit, which was really exciting. Mm-hmm. Like um, a phrenology exhibit? Yeah, uh, phrenology they even have like some uh, just like tools and like hospital beds. They have um, like a huge model of I think the Saint Mary's Hospital, uh, which was really oh, cool yeah. to see. Um, I love miniature buildings, yeah. so that was amazing for me. Yeah, yeah, it was a really really cool exhibit. So definitely go. And they also have like space stuff and other other things if you're interested in, yeah. in in that. For those of you like me who are interested in 19th century history, they have an atmospheric engine, which I got very happy to mm-hmm. see. Mm-hmm. And it's all free. Uh, yeah, like you, it's a free free museum. Yeah, due to COVID, I think you do need to like book a ticket to get in. But we booked a ticket like in line, like outside the thing. So we had mm-hmm. to go online to buy the ticket, mm-hmm. buy for free. Uh, and then you just show the ticket and you get in. Yeah. So that's nice. It's yeah. a great museum. So uh, Leechfest approved. Definitely go to the Science Museum if <laughs> the you're in London. Museum. Natural History Museum disapproved because they had a big line even though we had a queue. Yeah. Yeah. Because the original plan was for us to go to the National History Museum. And then the line was like fucking like a half 
kilometer long. So, yeah. it, I mean, it wasn't... It, like, we had tickets. Like, no way we're going to stand in line yeah. with tickets. Yeah, no, we, had, we no. had, like, a time booked to go at 11. And so we went to the guy and we were like, can, uh, we like, can we get in? Like, it's 11. And he was like, yeah, back to the back of the line back you go. Back of the line. Huh? <laughs> what? Like, I, why I mean, did I get the ticket if I had to stand in the line? Yeah, like maybe maybe that's just the way it works in other yeah. places. But I was I was just a bit like, huh? Like, uh, huh? It's yeah, weird. Like, at what time do you expect people to show up? When? How am I supposed to know? You straight up would have to, to get to the place like an hour early if yeah. you wanted to get in on your time. It was wild. Yeah. Science museum, no line. Yeah, well, a great. little bit of a line. But... Like honestly, like just a minute or so, like a thirty-second line. It was nothing. Yeah. But anyway, that was what we did recently. That was very fun. Mm -hmm. London. We did not see any uh, landmarks except for Buckingham Palace that we only saw by accident because we mm -hmm. were looking for a park bench mm -hmm. to make a phone call. <laughs> yeah, in passing. And we also uh, got hot pot and that was amazing. Um, well, love, love hot pot. Good hot pot. Um, I did bungle my chopsticks <laughs> like for the first little bit and for the next half hour, no joke, mm -hmm. the waitress would like hover like over us just watching us eat yeah that was a little weird i i don't think it was about you i think maybe she just wanted to make sure that we had everything but it was a bit weird to like to like eat and just feel watched like yeah. constantly like i remember kind of like yeah, like, like i remember glancing at her and being like you okay do, do you, you need something yeah. like i don't know i feel so bad me <laughs> like saying this but it was so weird to just eat while watched yeah. and they also give you um like a time limit like, mm. you have, like, an hour and 40 minutes, I think, to eat. Which, mm. again, like, that's probably just what they need to do. Um, yeah. But, it's, but it's, it, was, it's it, was, it was it was a bit weird. And they also had cameras above, the like, above every table. Which was another thing that I had no idea happens. Like, mm -hmm. you get watched by a waiter. You have a time limit. And there's also cameras, like, above every single table. Yeah. Like, what am I going to do? Like, steal the pot? <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm stealing the soup. Yeah, I like to think that she was just trying to be nice and maybe she was a bit like overzealous um or was nightmare yeah exactly mm -hmm. um, watched by a guard and a camera mm -hmm. while eating the soup and mm -hmm. even not eating it correctly um anyway we've been <laughs> this has been the longest intro we've ever done as yeah. you can tell like we are very excited about this trip to london great great trip loved mm -hmm. it but today is not about london today is about opium <laughs> and so because of that we have to thank the opiates of our masses our patrons <laughs> Um, thank you, patrons, for supporting the show. We wouldn't be able to do this without mm -hmm. you. If you're not a patron yet, check us out on pa Patreon uh, slash Leechfest. And, um, give us uh, money. Give <laughs> we like money. No, but, you know, money does make it easier for us to like make the show. It makes it easier to research. Mm -hmm. it, it helps a lot of things, and we're very happy for your support. And we have a special patron to thank this month. The special person is Mike Trenfield. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. You get access, along with many other patrons, <laughs> to early episodes of our podcast, as well as notes, and as you just heard, a nice little shout out. Mm -hmm. you, you're going to get a double. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, we appreciate your support, and we hope that you enjoyed this episode on Opium. All right, so this episode is divided um, very... Uh, straightforwardly. I will start by talking about like opium in general mm -hmm. um, and then I'm gonna talk about like the history of opium like very quickly like where it came from, how it kind of how it yeah. spread and just like super super shortly some some history about opium and then what are you gonna talk about Mia? I'm going to talk about opium as like 
as a major player in the economy of the world at the time, in the 1800s and some of the 1700s, how opium sort of like spread with addiction along mm-hmm. with some technical innovations that helped make it like both an attractive trade good, but also like one of the most dangerous like health problems that the world has ever seen. And I'm going to, I'm going to talk about that, including, of course, the opium wars, mm-hmm. specifically mm-hmm. the first one. Mm-hmm. There are like, there's, there's two of them. I won't talk about one because two of them. We only have so much time. Yeah, um, and I think we. You did you say you're also going to talk about the opioid epidemic? I'm going to mention yeah. the opioid epidemic. Yeah. We have made an episode on the opioid epidemic already. Mm. So anyway, I'll start with some general pharmacology about opium. So like I said, we've talked about opiates uh, before. So I'll try to not repeat myself too much in this episode. Uh, But as a short reminder of what opium is, it is a dried latex obtained from the poppy plant Papaver somniferum. Some of opium's major naturally occurring components are morphine, which makes up around 20% of opium, as well as codeine and febane. Febane. (laughs) Febane. Febane. Sounds like a Swedish sort of street name. These opioids bind to mu, kappa, and delta receptors, but mostly mu receptors in the central and the peripheral nervous system. And the analgesic effect, so the pain-killing effect, is obtained by the activation of descending inhibitory pathways of the central nervous system, as well as the inhibition of the nociceptive afferent neurons of the peripheral nervous system. Which basically, uh, what it ends up happening is it ends up blocking pain signals from reaching their final destination in mm. the brain. So this is why you like don't feel pain. Interesting. It, it's just straight up like it finds pain, the pain on button in the brain, and you're just like nope. It no it, it like closes a door. Yeah. <laughs> it shuts. It slams the door in the pain signal space. So interesting. As far as the physical effects of opium and opium derivatives, most users describe it as comfortable. Some people become briefly energized before they become relaxed and sleepy. Users also describe feeling like their problems start feeling unimportant, and they also mention feeling more patient and understanding. Some even feel like they've discovered some new way of thinking. Some also experience mild hallucinations and a sensation of floating. And an interesting thing is that all users eventually become constipated, uh, which is due to the to opium's anti-diarrheal effects. I just love how you said that. All of them eventually all of them. become constipated. <laughs> you like, you might think... Mild yeah, no. effects, all of them, 100%, mm-hmm. you become constipated after Like, a while. you might think <laughs> it's not going to happen to you, but it will happen it to will you. It will happen to you. Um, and this is actually a big reason why opium has been so popular over the ages, because it has anti-diarrheal properties. Mm-hmm. One of history's big killers. So they become constipated, which is due to opium's anti-diarrheal effects, um, and also eventually start itching all over. <laughs> oh, no. Um, yeah. It's bugs under my skin. Let's talk about how it's made. So opium has been cultivated in the same way for ages. Here's how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> Details and instructions. Here's the name of our dealer. Um, don't say that. <laughs> no, but um, I'm going to tell you like the about the traditional way that opium has been cultivated. So there's a traditional way and there's also like the more modern way that legal opium is cultivated. But I thought that the, the traditional way would be like an interesting uh, thing to talk about. Yeah. So about two weeks after the petals have dropped from the poppy plant, the pods, so the, you know, the the heart, Mm -hmm. are scored by hand to a depth of 1 to 1.5 millimeters with a specialized tool called a nushtor that looks like a small piece 
of wood with three to five parallel blades attached to it. After the bud has been scored, the milky white opium will ooze out of the pod, um, where it will dry and oxidize into a dark brown, sticky and viscous substance. The opium substance is then scraped off the pod with a tale, which is another specialized tool that looks like a blunt crescent blade. And these are all very, like, these are fucking old, like, ancient tools. So they've kept the same, like, the same tools, yeah. um, like, for ages. Um, the opium is then allowed to dry in the sun until the consistency is more like beeswax. The raw opium is then pressed into cakes, bowls, or blocks. For researching this podcast episode, I I did see, like, opium balls. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I always thought yeah. they come in like cakes, like in, in, in you know squares. Yeah, right. Like that's that's how I thought about it too. But yeah, balls, mm-hmm. balls, <clears throat> ball of opium. Um, and then a single pod can be tapped about six times and will produce about eighty milligrams of raw opium, depending on the size of the pod and the efficiency of the farmer. You know, when I was writing this, I I tried to look up like how much a dose is, and I couldn't find anything about it because. Typically, you only find, like, morphine doses. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which is stronger. It's also, like, the main active component mm-hmm. of... There's there's right? multiple, like, active um, yeah. com- components, but morphine is definitely, like, the biggest one yeah. and the one that, like, I think is the strongest. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I, don't, I, I, I was curious to see, like, how much opium you would need to, like, yeah. get do high. You need, do you need to, like, bite into the ball or is that going to just kill you? <laughs> There's different ways to prepare prepare it, and yeah. I'll I'll also talk about that. Anyway, if you need if you know how much opium is a dose, <laughs> let us know. I'm I'm actually kind of curious. I, I I get the feeling that like historically, like in the olden times when they people would like smoke opium and like take opium and like mm-hmm. eat opium and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I I I actually just think that they would start small and just keep going until it feels right. It doesn't feel like the type of but what's uh, an average dose? Like, you, you know, can say that about anything, but there's still an average dose. I guess. But, that, you know, that also depends on, like, how, For sure. how big you are. And, you yes, know. but there is an average dose. <laughs> <laughs> can we agree that there is an average okay, dose? Yes, sure. <laughs> okay. So, before opium can be sold, it has to be cooked. And to cook it... Let's cook Jesse. We cook Jesse. <laughs> Um, To cook it, the opium is dissolved into boiling water, which also helps separate the opium from any, like, debris or plant material. The opium is then simmered until enough water is removed, and all that is left is a thick, dark brown paste. The paste is then molded into the desired shape, and once again left to dry in the sun, after which it is shipped to the market or to the lab, where it is further processed. Interesting. Um, so that's the traditional method, and I think it's also like the method that illegal opium producers use. Mm-hmm. But we'll the get into that. we'll get into that. But the league, the leading legal production method involves mashing the entire poppy, excluding <laughs> the roots and the leaves. <laughs> just smash it up. Just smash it up. I mean, I I think they just don't like um like the the traditional method. I think involves a lot more like manpower. Like yeah. you actually need to send a bunch of guys on the field to mm-hmm. like score each poppy by hand. Mm-hmm. Whereas like the the this, this other one, like you just you yeah. you know you send a tractor on the field, collect all yeah. the poppies, and then like throw them in a big tub. Yeah. Um, and you're good. Yeah. Just let the big vat separate it. Yeah. So you uh, mash the entire poppy, excluding the roots and the leaves, and you. St- you stew it in a dilute acid solution. And this allows for the alkaloids, which are the, like, the basic main uh, active components, the compounds, to be recovered via acid-base extraction and then purified. 
and that's that's yeah, that is the, the the legal method fun because this is still grown legally in some cases yeah right? it to is make, um, mm-hmm. either for like its own use i guess in some sort of i think primarily it's it's like synthetic uh, yeah exactly but but like i don't think opium is not really used and it's like original yeah. form like it's mostly sent to pharmaceutical companies yeah. which then like further process it into like morphine and codeine yeah. and you know the other compounds yeah that makes sense um i wonder if there is a market for just just original opium i'm sure there is a legal market somewhere to make i don't know somewhere some I, i'm sure there is well maybe if you know <laughs> and along with the dose if you're like an opium professor or something <laughs> let us know we, we would like to know there's a lot of information about opium that we don't find because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah um, like the the average dose i fucking i don't know like opium like raw like original opium no one almost no one consumes that anymore it's yeah. always refined into something else exactly more right. potent mm-hmm. or like uh synthetic it's, yeah or yeah and it's it's more it's more easy to like know exactly how much you're taking whereas like with opium like just a bowl of like, like dried opium plants, like how sand, how yeah. are you gonna know yeah. um anyway let me talk about legality super quick so in the previous episode that we did about like opioids we talked a bit more in detail about like yeah, like legal issues, and we covered um, yeah we covered the legal status in some countries. So we're not gonna go through that too much mm-hmm. in the in this episode. Um, I'm just gonna say you know it's a class two drug. Um, class two. Yeah, it's a class two. Two. I think class one is when it doesn't have any like um, medical like, application. Uh, so heroin is a class one. But opium is a class 2 drug, and its production is allowed under the United Nations Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs, and can only be produced like under strict supervision mm. by law enforcement agencies. Mm-hmm. Opium is cultivated legally in Turkey and India, and there's a few other places, but those are like the, the main two exporters of legal opium, mm-hmm. and is then imported to the rest of the world or is then exported to the rest of the world to be further processed into pharmaceuticals. Afghanistan, that you're going to talk about later, (laughs) is a major exporter of illegal opium in the form of heroin. All right, so we talked about opium in general, what it is, pharmacology, what it feels like, in case you're curious. Hopefully you'll never know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's talk about the history of it. So opium has been known to relieve pain for millennia, with Sumerians in the third millennium BC making note of it in clay tablets and referring to it as hulgil, meaning the joy plant. <laughs> they loved it. They loved opium. It's a fun, fun plant. <laughs> they were like, this is the best plant. <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing. I love it. Hey, hey, Uruk, I heard about this plant just chiseling into like a clay tablet. Mm-hmm. Oh a, my God, have plant. you tried? <laughs> oh my God, sis, you will never believe it. This plant got my wig snatched. <laughs> got my wig snatched? Yeah. You're so fucking awful. <laughs> <laughs> so the Sumerians in Mesopotamia transmitted their knowledge and their um, enthusiasm uh, regarding the poppy plant. Their enthusiasm. Regarding... Brothers rules. <laughs> regarding the poppy plant to the Assyrians, who then transmitted it further to the Babylonians, who in turn passed it to the Egyptians in 1300 BC. So they all loved it. Like, opium spread like wildfire because yeah. it was... I guess it was like one of the first and only things that like worked. So, mm-hmm. you know, people got like wind of it and yeah. just all loved it it's a it's a reliable recreational drug first of all but it's also like a reliable 
an aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Medical plant. Yeah, yeah like it, it, it works. It, it, it fucking works. So the Egyptians started cultivating it on the on a large scale. The Egyptians were the first ones who, um, you know, they f- found this plant and they were like, let's... Let's figure out how to optimize this. Let's turn this into a business. <laughs> so they started the, cultivating it on can, a large... Can I just say, the Egyptians of all the ancient civilizations, they were the one who had the Sigma grind set. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they started cultivating it on a large scale, and the trade of opium flourished during the reign of Fatmos IV, Akhenaton, and especially during the reign of King Tutankhamen, which I guess is the ones that most people know about, mm-hmm. including me. Love Akhenaton, Tutankhamen. <clears throat> Trading took opium across the Mediterranean Sea into Greece, uh, the citizens of which used opium extensively in a variety of forms, including by inhalation of vapors as a suppository, Just boof it. Um, As a poultice and in combination with hemlock for suicide. (laughs) Oh my god. Um, Another very popular way in which opium was used in medicine was by soaking sponges in opium and placing them under the patient's nostrils, who was then supposed to fall asleep. Oh. And this was something that um, actually ended up being used for like hundreds of years after. In the first centuries before Common Era, opium spread further through conquest and trade with Alexander the Great introducing it to the people of Persia and India, where it would be used for diarrhea and sexual debility. <laughs> and with Arab traders introducing it into China and Europe. I do like that Alexander the Great spreads it to, like, what was it, India? Persia and India, yeah. Yeah, Persia and India. He, he takes opium there, takes, op- takes leprosy back home. <laughs> Good trade. <laughs> I receive. <laughs> I receive. You receive opium, I receive leprosy. <laughs> Trade offer. <laughs> so the introduction of opium to the Islamic world contributed to the great strides made in the fields of anesthesia, analgesia, pharmacology, and surgery. Um, you know, like we talked about the the golden era in the Islamic world, and we we mentioned about how they were so good at like surgery and they how they they really developed yeah. the field of medicine, mm-hmm. and that's probably because they well not just because but probably that was made easier by the fact that they. Um, had access to opium and they were able to really like develop new ways to put people to sleep (laughs) yeah um you can't really perform effective surgery if your patient is awake and screaming yeah in baghdad opium was used in pills and as anointment to treat a variety of illnesses including leprosy and that's interesting to me because i wouldn't think of opium as like an appropriate way to treat the leprosy um i don't actually haven't looked into how effective it was but it's one of the things that they used opium for Also, Al-Razi, one of the leading physicians and scholars at the time... God damn it, he comes up he every comes up, episode. I, I know, very, very uh, famous, famous person. Uh-huh. He was the first to use opium as a general anesthetic. Very cool. So, like, put, put the person entirely to sleep. Yeah. In China, opium was used extensively, especially by soldiers and by physicians. And it was often used as an alcoholic tincture called a paragoric which was a somewhat weaker version of laudanum. This tincture was used as a pain medication, a sleeping aid, and anti-diarrheal medication. And like I mentioned before, one thing that uh, you need to know about opium is that it really constipates you, yeah. like, a lot. <laughs> it uh, significantly slows intestinal motility, therefore giving your intestines a lot more time to reabsorb fluid from your stool. <laughs> Did you say... Motility? Motility, yeah. Okay. And this was very valuable as diarrhea has been a huge problem in history due to poor sanitation, bacterial and viral infections, poor nutrition, spoiled food, and overcrowding at some points in history. Yeah. 
Um, like di diarrhea was a big deal. So any yeah. drug that could reduce diarrhea was a godsend. Yeah. Again, like, and this is why they gave opium to children. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, as I said, one of history's big killers. Back to opium's voyage around the world. The Portuguese, while trading along the East China Sea in the 1500s, um, had a very interesting realization. <laughs> mm -hmm. They realized that smoking opium has a much faster effect than taking it orally. And they were like, hell yeah. <laughs> oh, we have discovered something <laughs> fanciful. And I mean, this this was known before, but I guess they didn't have like super great like communication. I don't know. They I found sources saying that the Portuguese were among the first to discover it. I don't know about that. But I, they, I, there's there's a reason for why this happens that I actually found in my research. Very so interesting. I'll, so you'll you'll I'll tell us about that. that. Um, but they, you know, they they discovered this and they um, went ham wild on it. <laughs> ham wild. And they went ham wild. Um, so I didn't know this, but apparently smoking opium does not actually involve burning the opium opium itself. It actually only heats it indirectly at a temperature at which the active compounds, the alkaloids, so, you know, the ones that I mentioned, primarily morphine, are vaporized. Um, and now I'm going to tell you how to smoke opium. <laughs> and I, uh, of course, I have to preface this by saying, you know, don't smoke opium. Mm -hmm. um, but in the interest of um, knowledge, <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you how to smoke opium. So the way it works is that the opium pipe has a removable, um, like, knob-like pipe bowl mm -hmm. of earthenware which you can take out and fill with like a, a little uh, pea-sized pea blob of opium and then you reattach it to the stem and then you lie on your side and you hold it over a very special opium lamp and it's a it's a very specific lamp and it's special because it channels the exact amount of heat that is needed to to vaporize the opium without actually burning it mm -hmm. but do you know what this means what do you, do you... <laughs> The Portuguese, I guess, innovated this. The traders. I'm fine. Yeah, yeah. like this is how mm -hmm. we like smoke. Yeah, they invented the vape. <laughs> They're vaping opium. So it, is that it's, what vaping is? Yes, I have never, yes. I've never vaped. I don't know. Because vaping, vaping is where you, you vaporize something. You don't burn it. You vaporize it. So that you, and then you inhale the vapors. Are you, are you saying that smoking opium is actually the, the probably like an incorrect term and we should historically correctly say <laughs> vaping it? But so, you, you know, this, like I said, like the opium lamp is a very specific uh, kind of lamp. It gives out the exact, the just right amount of heat to, va to vaporize the morphine. And it also has a small chimney. So you can like just plop your pipe in the chimney and get the localized heat like straight into the, the bowl. Mm. Um, so you'd lie on your side and guide your pipe over the stream of heat coming from the lamp and inhale the fumes as needed, as your heart desired. And there you go. That's how you smoke That's opium. That's how you smoke opium. That's <laughs> hope, so interesting. I hope that was educational. <laughs> it's very educational. That's so cool. I know. I, I, I've never really thought about it. I've never thought about like how to smoke opium. But I guess that's how you do it. By the way, between 1300s and 1500s, Europe lost interest in opium due to the increasingly severe Catholic Church. Homeboys! <laughs> they always make an appearance. They always make an appearance. Every time there's something fun that we talk about, the Catholic Church comes in and says, mm. nah. Nah. Um, and it was primarily because they associated opium with like the East and everything that came from the East was like the devil, the devil's <laughs> tool. So you weren't allowed to touch it. Mm -hmm. It was, however, reintroduced to Western medicine in 1527. 
by a guy named Paracelsus, who was a Swiss alchemist and philosopher, and who turns out was a very interesting man with a lot of ideas. <laughs> oh, oh um, I find something good coming up. <laughs> and um, listen, I know this episode is not about him, but I couldn't help but dedicate a little section to my man, Paracelsus, because he was very interesting. Okay. So he was mostly active in like the late 1400s and early 1500s, and was apparently one of the first, at least in Europe, to think about and work on antisepsis. He argued that wounds should be kept clean, stating that if you prevent infection, nature will heal the wound by herself. Which is not Which is fair. entirely wrong. Yeah. It is fair. And this was an interesting belief because at the time it was believed that infection was a natural part of the healing process. <laughs> yeah. Remember, germ theory is the thing yet. Yeah. Right? And so he, like... he was one of the first people to actually start thinking about germ theory. He also happens to be one early proponent of the use of mercury to treat syphilis, which, you know, has its pros and cons. Mm -hmm. a <laughs> it does kill you, but it was also pretty effective at treating syphilis. Mm -hmm. So, you know what? I think that's a win. Um, and it was also the first to determine that syphilis could only be contracted by contact. This man is so smart. He, honestly, he was so good. He was also a proponent of fasting, considering it to be the greatest remedy, the physician within. So he was the first like intermittent fasting bro. <laughs> he was like, bro, you, 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 this you better. microdosing <laughs> yeah, mushrooms at yeah, the same yeah, time. Got the Sigma grind set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Switzerland kind of was the, the Silicon Valley of, of the 1500s. So that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with the mercury, the intermittent fasting thing, like he had a lot of ideas, not all of them were right. And like, you know, I'm not an expert on him. Like I'm sure he most likely did and, you know, said things that were not <laughs> ideal. Yeah, of um, the time that may have been weird. Yeah, but I just thought he was very interesting. And he had a lot of like really progressive ideas, um, especially like for the time. Yeah. He also argued against bloodletting stating that blood could not be purified by lessening its quantity. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, that makes you sense. You got it, bro. That, that makes sense. But at the time, that was like a groundbreaking idea. Yeah, um, that's, that's amazing. And also anticipated the germ theory by proposing that illnesses were entities in themselves rather than, sta than states of being. <laughs> Um, he also made a very astute observation that the dose makes the poison, which sounds basic, but it's actually a very like important fundamental principle of toxicology. Yeah. Anything can be a poison if you take enough of it and yeah. eat like small amounts of things can actually be beneficial. And I think he came up with that because he was among the first to use like minerals and like um, yeah, like like minerals and um, inorganic compounds mm -hmm. in his. Medis medical practice and he yeah. got a lot of like criticism about it because people were like uh you know like that's toxic like you can't use it and then he was like no it depends on the dose yeah. like if i give just the right amount like it there, could be good it, 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 it will be good and it's the same like with the mercury like he he thought that if the mercury dose was like carefully monitored then it could actually like help yeah in addition to his very interesting medical theories he was also very politically engaged <laughs> okay is this where the controversy comes <laughs> no there's no controversy but i thought it was very interesting um for example he only held his lectures in german not latin oh my god which Bro, was this is the 1500s <laughs> my guy i'm telling you but he, that's so fucking progressive because it was the custom to hold medical lectures in Latin. Because yeah. it was like this 
Um, it's it's the academic. It's the it was, lingua it franca a, of academia. Ex- yeah. Exactly, but he argued that he wanted his lectures to be available to everyone, so he only held his lectures in like the language of the people. He also disfavored conventional traditional medicine and publicly bur- burned editions of Galen's and Avicenna's works. <laughs> Like in the public square. Galen was fucking wrong and I got the proof. Is, is this guy Bernie Sanders? <laughs> he was so good. Um, and this is because he hated untested theories and also the tendency, yes! the tendency to value ideas based on who they came from. So, you know, he was, he very much hated like how old philosophers would just like say something and everybody would like hold it as true just yeah. because fucking Galen said it. Yeah, this is, um, this is incredible. I love it's, this. I love, I love him. And one other form of rebellion was his inviting barber surgeons, alchemists, and apothecaries to serve as positive examples of people who weren't academically educated, but did their job well. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Fuck yeah, dude. (laughs) He was a people's person. Yeah, dude rocks. Um, I love this man. On a more personal note, he was prone to outbursts of abusive language and was also known to be a glutton and a drunk. (laughs) A close, <laughs> a close. This co- man rules. A- <laughs> okay, this man blows my socks off. This is the most amazing man in the world. Mm-hmm. This man gets drunk in the bar and just like Galen is a fucking fraud. Yeah, no one tested this shit. I don't trust it. Also, I think, I think germ theory is a thing. I think there are tiny things inside you that make you sick. Mm-hmm. Clean the fucking wounds. I, I hate Everson. Mm-hmm. I think he was violent too. Like he would get into fights with. <laughs> So professors like you can like Galen you need, like listen you have to you respect can, the elders you have you to respect, respect the elders you need the to art keep of medicine academic tra- tradition you can't just mm-hmm. go around speaking in German it's not okay and he's just like yeah knocks them out yeah uh, let let me finish Perfect so man. he he was a glutton and a drunk I mean you know not ideal but maybe he was under a lot of stress yeah King. you know it's it's we all had something we all had something. Um, a close companion uh, said the following about him. The two years I passed in his company, he spent in drinking and in gluttony day and night. He could not be found sober an hour or two together. Um, and I think he got into some trouble with the law. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm had not to surprised. Leave, and had to leave the town. Um, he's, he had to bounce. Yeah, he had to leave the... the I don't remember hey, the Cam. name. <laughs> Yeah, uh, there's a town in Germany where he spent, like, most of his life, uh, most of his early life, he, you know, taught and whatever. But he, yeah, he got into some trouble with the law, had to leave, um, and apparently the the move was pretty hard on him. And mm. then, you know, he was a little, he, he took to the bottle <laughs> yeah. after he had to move. But, you know, he's known, he, he has an amazing legacy. He's known for being the first in... Um, proposing a lot of like very interesting ideas yeah. in medicine and in pharmacology. So overall, like ten out of ten guy. I love his uh, <laughs> like political involvement too. Very cool guy. This this man rules. Mm-hmm. I'm so happy you let me know of this man. I've never heard of him. I know me neither. Um, it's it's really cool when you when we do these episodes and then we just stumble upon like a gem <laughs> of a historical figure. I'll I'll in, like I'll include a picture of him because he's he's also pretty interesting looking. But back to opium. So this guy, Paracelsus, reintroduced opium in Europe in the early 16th century in the form of laudanum, which was made from opium, alcohol, and sometimes citrus juice in quintessence of gold. 
and gold. yeah i mean he Fun. i think that was like a common ingredient in like expensive medication yeah um at this time opium was primarily given to like more like wealthier people yeah um so you know it came with the territory yeah and it was prescribed as a painkiller or a sedative at the same time recreational use was taken up by citizens of the persian empire the mughal empire and turkey and yumia We'll be talking more about how the addictive properties of opium and its profitability led to political conflict. So, speaking of political upheaval, you may have heard of something called the Opium Wars. I may have heard of it, yes. You may have heard of it. Major historical event. Not a lot of people know a lot of details about that, so we're going to get into that. But we're going to first dig into some background. So the history of opium as a trade good, before we go into the war business, um, we need to talk about like major economics first. And this involves colonialism, it involves the decline of empires, it involves imperialism, a lot of funky stuff. In the 17th and 18th century, many European powers were expanding their influence in Asia. Um, the Americas at this point have been colonized by Spain, France, Britain. They've established their colonies over there and are now moving into Asia. Britain is, is expanding into India and uh, there's, there's, some, there's some fun stuff going on. The Portuguese have established trade ports in China and some other places. Um, as I mentioned, the British were conquering all of India <laughs> uh, bit by bit. But it was after the Spanish Congress of the Philippines the major trade between China and European powers really took off. You may have heard of a little bit of like trade from China uh, in your like high school history class, like how European powers would love to get like silks and ceramics and things like that. That's 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 where the Opium War has its has its start. Now the Imperial Chinese government would only exchange uh, their goods in exchange for silver bullion. The oh, silver, silver, silver what? bullion, which it's it's a type of it's a type of like silver money, just silver bullion. Yeah, I think that's how it's pronounced. It's just silver. It's a, it's, okay. a, it's a it's a way of like measuring. It's a, like a unit of silver. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, now the Spanish had a lot of this silver, which is why after the conquest of the Philippines, they could sort of like flush uh, China with this trade. Their silver mines in Peru and Mexico, which they still controlled produced around 85% of the entire global supply of silver. Uh, How fucking convenient. (laughs) I know. Um, Which means that when they wanted to buy things from from China, the Spanish could just be like, oh, great, we have a lot of this stuff. Yeah, let me just send a boat real quick. We'll buy everything, everything you have. Everything you have. (laughs) And China was the main import of this by a wide margin. Fun story here. One of the kings of Spain, whose image was on the peso during his reign, looked to the Chinese like Buddha. So they referred to this as the fat Buddha coin or the Buddha head coin. Interesting. And you know how the dollar today is sort of like the universal currency that like people like you can go to like basically any country and they will know what a dollar is and a lot of places will trade with dollars even outside the US. The Spanish peso was that of this time just because it was like, so ubiquitous as a currency. And actually, a lot of other nations, like the Dutch, for example, they would sometimes do fake coins. They would have silver, but they would make Spanish pesos 
because like the, the Chinese just wanted Spanish coins more than they wanted other types of silver because they liked the Buddha. <laughs> now, China had a lot of goods that Europeans like were craving, like silks, ceramics, and tea. Tons and tons and tons of tea. China, on their part, just wanted silver. They wanted it to be used for money uh, because China, during this time especially, just doesn't have a lot of precious metals in its territory. Doesn't have a lot of gold, doesn't have a lot of silver. It has some copper, but not a lot. So I guess they didn't use it as currency themselves. They would like melt it and use it for like building or whatever? No, they, they did want to use it for currency, uh-huh. but they were desperate to have it. That's, okay. This is actually one of the big reasons why China were one of the first countries in the world to invent paper currency. Mm-hmm. Because in other places you could have like Like you had more access metals, to metals, right? yeah, and they but didn't have any they metals. They didn't have any of that. That's so they had to invent a bureaucracy around money use paper Hmm. um that's really interesting because you wouldn't do that now like can you imagine if like you know you're trying to trade with a country and they give you money so you use their money as like a national currency Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know like that's not something that you really would do yeah, well, they right. they, they so, would they would like melt it. They would melt it down and make their own money out of oh, it. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So but that, that's that's what I yeah yeah. So, but they would make it their own money out of it, okay, rather okay. than mm-hmm. like for like decoration or yeah. for. But like they didn't like use that. yeah they didn't use like this the Spanish silver peso as like a, a currency inside China. They would like yeah. Yeah. yeah not inside China but on the coastline it would actually be used because mm-hmm. traders would use it primarily. Mm-hmm. Fun fun. It's such a fun history fact though that I find, that I find so interesting. And during this time, opium was being traded, but not in significant quantities. Um, they haven't. They hadn't discovered addiction yet. <laughs> they so, some addiction, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. Now, more economics before we can get into this. I know. Welcome to economical history. I have. I know nothing about <laughs> economical history. I'm like trying to like move away from it because I'm gonna have nothing, <laughs> nothing to contribute. Like. I know supply. We're going to talk about addiction. I know supply talk- and demand, <laughs> and that's like about where it ends for me. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about trade deficit. Great. Uh, it's going to be fun. Uh, the British, along with their East India Company, became the dominant economy in the region to trade with China due to their dominance of India and the resources therein. Now, I didn't include this in my script because we didn't, but you mentioned the Mughal Empire. The Mughal Empire was declining at this time, with many of its territories falling to the British. And the Mughal Empire had built many opium fields that they used to sustain their economy internally. But they did not use it as an export good. But the British, they saw that the Portuguese had discovered that they could sell, they could, they could buy opium in India and sell it in China for a wide margin. Mm-hmm. And in China, tobacco had been banned for a long time. It was seen as a decadent good. Opium hadn't been banned yet, though, because um, it was it wasn't seen as like a significant enough of a problem. And now we also have to talk about other historical factors that are coming in. There are so many like lines that that fold into why opium becomes such such a big thing. Um, now, since the 1500s, but more in the 1700s, tobacco had become a major good in the entire world, right? Tobacco finds its uh, roots in the New World, like in the Americas. And tobacco smoking had like spread across the world and had spread to China as well. But again, bad. Not about the Portuguese, as you mentioned. The Portuguese are smoking tobacco all the time. And they realized that you can put the opium in, t- mm. in a tobacco pipe. <laughs> Some dude like, on, a, on a boat I was like... I have opium and I have a pipe. 
what if put these two together? (laughs) And and as you say, they discovered it was very effectful. And because opium wasn't like strictly banned in China, they were like, okay, we have tobacco pipes, Mm -hmm. we have opium, maybe we can sell it to them and teach them how to do it. Mm -hmm. And it worked. Mm -hmm. The Chinese were like, oh, we can smoke this. This is way more fun than any other type of recreational yeah. drug so far. And also, like before, like the, the mm-hmm. Chinese already had um, opium, yeah. but they didn't. They didn't like smoke it. They used it as a like a tincture with alcohol, and mm-hmm. that was like, like I said, like that was used medically, but it wasn't really something that they used recreationally. Exactly. Until until the this pipe yeah, until hit the, the pipe. <laughs> and the pipe here is important, right? Because like in that, I compared it a little bit to like tobacco, mm-hmm. like. Tobacco, before you realize you can smoke it, like, I guess you chew it, mm-hmm. like, eh, it's not that fun. Like, why would that spread as, like, an addiction? It doesn't like, hit. It doesn't yeah. hit. Smoking, it does. Same thing with opium. Just because it hits faster, more reliably, like, it's, it hits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they find a market in China. And the British want to exploit this, too. And they find a lot of, like, grounds in this, too, because... <laughs> at this, while all of this is happening, we're talking about the first instance of a global economy. Egypt... And South America, they are mechanizing their cotton industry. Farmers in India have traditionally made cotton. They can't compete with cotton prices in Egypt anymore. They can't. They don't have the technology to do it. They can't keep up. Opium becomes a desirable cash crop. And of course, the British wanted their own supplies of Asian goods, specifically tea. And they tried growing this tea in India. Can't grow it as efficiently as the Chinese are, though. The Chinese are just better at growing tea than they are in India. But they can make opium better than the Chinese can. Now, because the European powers are importing such huge quantities of Chinese goods, like silk, ceramics, and tea, and so much silver is flowing into China, this leads to a huge trade deficit. The only reason why the European economy can even do this is because of silver mines in the Americas. It's the only reason why it's even possible for the European economy to even keep up. But obviously, these European powers want to keep that silver for themselves. They, want, they don't want to give it to the Chinese. So they realize that they can counter trade, by which meaning that like, you can sell a good to China and then get other goods in return. The only good that China is really interested in is opium. That's it. Now, to be fair, this trade wasn't amazing for China either. Even though they were getting a lot of silver and even though like, they had a booming export industry, This was causing inflation and a reliance on European silver to back up their economy, but their economy did grow significantly during this time. But we're seeing how there's a a big trade imbalance that one part wants to fix quickly, and Mm -hmm. one part, like, it's a little unstable, but it's okay. And so here's where opium comes in. So after the traders basically, like, introduce smoking opium in China, it spreads like wildfire. And the imperial government in China does not like this. This is causing addiction, poverty, and greatly decreased the overall health of people in China, especially in port cities where, like, that's where the opium comes in first. And this was affecting people from every single class, by the way. Mostly poor people, but it affected bureaucrats, it affected traders, it affected, like, people high up in the imperial bureaucracy. At the end of this reign, I'm going to mention that... People were smuggling opium into the Forbidden City. Forbidden City is a huge palace that the Emperor of China resides in. It is like strictly locked up, no goods in or out, no people in or out, unless the Emperor sort of like is okay with it or the Imperial bureaucracy is okay with it. But people were smuggling opium in and out. Guards were like being corrupt, but only for opium. The Emperor even like 
release like an imperial decree that's like it's a stainless society, it's a stain in humanity, it's awful for everyone. It's on. The, it's in the port cities. It's in the countryside. It's in the bureaucrats. It's in my palace. <laughs> y'all, bro- y'all took it in here. Was the emperor not like partaking? The emperor was not partaking. The imperial. Well, I mean, maybe he was, but as far as we know, he didn't. Yeah. There's no evidence to say that the emperors like partook or mm-hmm. the imperial family partook, and most likely they didn't. But they could have. Because, you know, like, if, if, the, if the imperial family didn't want something written down, it was not written down, <laughs> you Fair. know. So, Fair. it is what it is. And because the British had such a huge market share in the region, thanks to India, they established a de facto monopoly on opium in Asia and would buy opium at a fixed low price from farmers in India and then sell it on to China for massive profit. Basically, they're saying that, like, you, like, even if you produce more opium than usual, you will, we will only buy it at a set price. Which isn't great for the farmers, but it's still better than what other crops would have given them. It's still a very unfair trade here, because they have this monopoly. And this means that opium flows into China. And the Yangzheng Emperor of China responded in the 1730s to this by banning the sale and smoking of opium within China, which unfortunately didn't have too much of an effect. British traders would sell to Chinese smugglers who would then sell it on to China itself. Basically, they would like meet at certain locations around the coast, just hand it off to a smuggler, and then they would sell it off. The traders, British traders, didn't really care because they got the silver. And they had trading ports in China where traders could reside and have warehouses where they would keep opium where the emperor couldn't go. <laughs> um, so they could just like, you know, sell it out, like bypassing the guards. <laughs> and oftentimes the guards and bureaucrats like, around the port cities would also be corrupt. So, you know, not a huge effect. Not a very um, healthy, like... No. I, don't, I don't even know, like... Um, I mean, it seems that everybody was corrupt. The reason why everyone was corrupt, though, is because this opium was extraordinarily lucrative for mm-hmm. the British and for the East India Company. Like, it, it, like it alone... I'm going to get to this a bit later, but, mm-hmm. like, this crop alone, no other crop managed to flip the entire trade dynamic in favor of the British. Mm-hmm. Meaning that, like, for all the worth of all of the goods, the silks, ceramics, tea, all of that, which is, in like, an incredible amount of money, it would be cancelled out by the sale of opium alone. So one crop in exchange for the entire market of China. And after handing off the opium to smugglers, the company would then use the silver from those trades to buy more Chinese goods to take to Europe. And... All the while this is happening, opium is flowing into China. In 1729, China would import roughly 200 chests of opium, each weighing around 140 pounds or a bit over 60 kilograms each. But by 1838, the trade had grown to up to 40,000 chests. Now, in the early 19th century, the Chinese government began to crack down on opium and began to actively sentence any trafficker of opium to death, regardless of their social status. So if you're rich and, and sold opium or like handed off opium to someone else, death! <laughs> the emperor appointed a man called Lin Jeju to eradicate the opium trade entirely, tall order, and he tried writing letters to Queen Victoria, rooting out smuggling networks, but nothing really worked, unfortunately. The letter that he wrote to Queen Victoria also had the idea, because he thought that opium was banned in Great Britain, uh, and because he had that like tiny like mistake, the, the entire British bureaucracy were like, oh, okay, well, he, his opinion is worth nothing. 
So he resorted to closing down trading rivers, trapping ships in the river, raiding trading ports, which historically had been outside of the imperial jurisdiction, and he raided merchant centers and storehouses as well as ships carrying opium. He also laid siege to trade ports and kept traders from communicating with their own ships until they gave up their opium stores. <laughs> Basically, he's like, okay, I know where the opium is. Everyone knows where the opium is. I'm just going to go in and fucking get it. Like, enough. <laughs> then I get it. Now, the British superintendent of the area, Charles Elliot, didn't want chaos to break out and didn't want a bunch of dead Europeans in a Chinese port, especially under his watch. So he said, just give them the opium. Like, go free, and the British crown will compensate for any losses. He didn't have the authority to give this promise, and the British crown couldn't actually compensate for this cost without causing, like, major political upheaval. Like, in the British Empire, or... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a lot of opium that would just, like, go, like, missing. And a lot of money. And like, a lot this of is money. a lot, a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I, there's, um, there's a cost that comes up later to compensate for it, which mm -hmm. doesn't actually translate to what it actually lost, it's actually less... Um, but I'll, I'll get to that later. So the traders gave up their goods, and Chinese authorities destroyed up to 21,000 chests of opium. Now this meant that the supply of opium was short, and farmers in India couldn't keep up with demand anymore, meaning that the market is disrupted. Mm -hmm. This led the British to send a fleet to China to say, actually, you pay. China pay. We don't pay. Now the Chinese refused, sparking the first opium war. Now, the war itself isn't very interesting, but Britain eventually won that war, gaining Hong Kong for a 99-year lease. That's why Hong Kong is, has the status that it has today. It got stronger trading rights and a ban on the Chinese trying to stop the sale of opium, as well as 3 million silver dollars to pay back the traders who got their opium destroyed. Yeah. I mean, that, you, know, you know, like, I'm, I'm not the historian. Obviously, I know a little bit about the Opium Wars. I'm not the historian, but it sounds like the Chinese got their, like, butts handed to them. It wasn't a huge... It wasn't a gigantic war, in that mm -hmm. sense, but the British came over... Like, they sent a fleet. Mm -hmm. The Chinese didn't really have a fleet. They didn't have a fleet? Not in the, not in the same scale as the British. Mm -hmm. Like, they had, they had uh, ships called Junkers, mm -hmm. And and uh, like I think maybe a couple of junks. Um, but I knew I knew that China had large large ships that they used for exploration. But maybe yes. those are different from like war warships. And that's also from a different time. Yeah, uh, those expeditions. I know they they earlier, stopped yeah. at some point because I, I don't remember which emperor. But and this is all I remember from high school. <laughs> um, some emperor like stopped the expeditions. He mm -hmm. wanted to like keep everything like localized to China. Like yeah. he wanted to like tighten. Mm -hmm. The area of concern of, yeah. of China. Keep, keep everything within the Middle Kingdom. Yeah, but so so they didn't. Was it was it just like the 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 war ships that wasn't enough? Like how come the British like like won well, so the, hard? Their ships were more technologically advanced. Mm -hmm. Like they had better guns, they had better ships, better sails, uh, and British soldiers had just also better guns and were more like battle hardened mm -hmm. uh, than mm -hmm. than the Chinese and. Yeah, I guess, I guess the Brits had been warring for some time. And, <laughs> they had you know, been conquering for some time. They were they had the experience. And especially when you have like ships, like big ships, and your opponent doesn't. Yep. Like you can just stay in the water and just like, okay. Boop, I guess we'll boop. just shoot at you from here. That's yeah. basically what they did. Can't touch this. I mean, that, that's basically yeah. what they did. Like yeah. they had like unilateral artillery support. They didn't need to like expand 
like far into the country or anything. The British, mm-hmm. like, but they could just like destroy their ports. Port city, yeah. and that would be enough. And I guess that cuts off like trade and, and like destroys the economy as well. And especially since China was so dependent on European silver here, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. because this had been over a hundred years of like con- continual trade. Which had boosted the Chinese economy, but they were so reliant on the on the European economy that they, like, once that stops, the Chinese economy just falls apart. Mm-hmm. That three million figure is not adjusted for inflation, by the way, and would today probably measure to billions of dollars, mm-hmm. which is quite a lot of money. Mm-hmm. By 1906, the importance of opium in the West's trade with China had declined, and the Qing government was able to regulate the importation and consumption of the drug. In 1907, China signed the 10 Years Agreement with India, whereby China agreed to forbid native cultivation and consumption of opium, on the understanding that the export of Indian opium would decline in proportion and cease completely within 10 years. And the trade was thus almost completely stopped by 1917. Up until this time, though, like the, the health effects for the Chinese population had been like devastating. Mm-hmm. Like, Thousands and thousands of people had, had died, essentially. This drug problem actually became so bad that it was like it, it it permeated within China for a long time, where local like farmers would still grow opium just to sustain like an addicted population. And this became like an ongoing problem up to 1950, like into the 1950s. Because Mao, um, like communist chairman Mao. A big thing he did was he cracked down on like the use of opium in China, and it didn't really like end as like a social health issue until until him. He did a lot of bad shit. <laughs> to be fair, we're not praising Mao here, but you know, cracking down on opium was probably like kind of a good thing. It wasn't only in China uh, this addicted problem existed, though. First of all, the practice of smoking opium had spread in Chinese diaspora throughout the world, and many Europeans also found a love of opium. This led to the fabled opium den. Many of these dens were basically just tiny rooms where people would basically hotbox opium. Not very fancy places. Some of the more fancy ones, for the upper classes, however, could be themed, often in a Chinese theme with Chinese staff. Uh, Many of them would actually be run by uh, Chinese people. This happened because during this time, opium was very connected to, like, China and the idea of China. It was very much in the cultural awareness that, like... It's a Chinese thing. It's a Chinese thing. (laughs) It's something that that the Europeans forced on China, but... that didn't come up in their, like, acknowledgement, I guess. Mm. I'm just thinking about, like, you know, a lot of, like, mo- movies that are, like, period pieces. Like, sometimes, like, opium dance will come up and it's always, like, a like an oriental-themed yeah. uh, room with, like, uh, you know, Chinese girls, like, going around or Asian girls going around and, like, serving men with opium. Yeah. I'm thinking specifically about, um, do you remember the picture of Dorian Gray? Yeah, there's, the like, movie, a scene, yeah. there's a scene there. In an opium den. <laughs> I, I thought about that movie while I was writing the script, yeah, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Authorities didn't like these dens very much due to the problem of addiction already mentioned. Um, and this kind of started the first war on drugs. In the US, France, and the UK, and many other places, governments would basically do PSAs about the dangers of opium and institute laws against, guess what? Rarely opium, but the Chinese. <laughs> Which is just flat-out racism, because this led to the creation of the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 in the U.S., which just banned all immigration of Chinese laborers, mm-hmm. um, which wasn't changed, by the way, until 1943, when the law changed to allow up to 132 <laughs> Chinese people to immigrate per year. So, you know. 
progress. I love I love the number like a hundred and thirty two. Like so who came up specific. who came up with that number? Also, I'm noticing that this is kind of a like a common theme that whenever there's like a fear of something, the the first thing that authorities will do is like, okay, what minority group do we associate <laughs> this bad thing with? Yeah. Solution: <laughs> ban minority group from entering the country. And I'm like, right now, I'm thinking about. Uh, do you remember the episode we did on uh, syphilis mm-hmm. and how they would like ban immigrants from entering like the United States? Because um, immigrants carry syphilis, I guess. I don't sure. sure. <laughs> so just inspect inspect them in port cities, and also don't let them in, and syphilis will be solved. Except not. <laughs> That's how syphilis works. Mm-hmm. It's it's fucking wild. Now the science didn't stop developing opium science. And in 1803, Frederick Sertener discovered the active ingredient of opium and used it to create refined morphine. Um, I have a question. Yes. What is opium science? Is opium science in the room with us right now? <laughs> Seriously, Mia, what the fuck is opium science? Well, the science of like... Like, like pharmacology? Op- op- yeah. Pharmaco- yes. Is but, that- but specifically <laughs> opium. Okay. <laughs> and scientists rejoice because they believe they have found the perfect medicine. Opium usually has a lot of side effects, and morphine has the least up to this point. Or so they thought. Or so they thought. It's not addictive. Because <laughs> they're, they're actually looking All here. the benefits with none of the consequences. Mm-hmm. I love morphine. Don't clip this. <laughs> Don't clip this. Uh, they are... Because they're looking for like a non-addictive form of opium. Mm-hmm. That is what they're looking for. They're hoping to like... Because a lot of them think that opium has, like, the pain-solving effect and the addictive effect, but that they're separate things. They mm-hmm. think that they can separate them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what they're doing really is just, like, making it stronger mm-hmm. and more potent. Mm-hmm. In 1895, a man called Heinrich Dressler in Germany began production of heroin, <laughs> which is made Love by it. diluting morphine with certain chemicals. And in each step of the process here... <laughs> We both discover wonders for medicine, as this basically revolutionized anesthesiology, and also gives us new and wonderful ways to misuse the drug in more and more potent ways, and also more potentially dangerous ways. Now, these forms of opium helped spur along medical advances in the realm of surgery, pain management, and so on, but the medical use of opium, like raw opium, began to decline after 1934, when German pharmaceutical company IG Farben, famous for using human experimentation in World War II, Nazis again. Damn it, I thought we were free of it. <laughs> we're never free of it. They created the first synthetic opioid, Demerol. They later used this to create methadone in 1937. But opium remains a cash crop today, either to make semi-synthetic opioid medication, like we've already mentioned a little bit in the beginning, or as a medication in itself, but mostly as a fundamental ingredient in making illicit heroin. Which brings us to <laughs> Afghanistan. Now, the biggest producer of opium today is Afghanistan, by a wide margin. The crop is extremely profitable, especially compared to many other crops available. This means a lot of people turn to growing it either because of abject poverty, farmers who have no choice, or farms are started by organizations looking for cash. Taliban. Now, Afghanistan is an interesting example because before 2001, opium production existed on a stable level in what was then the Islamic Emirate. In 2001 specifically, opium production was exceptionally low due to a harsh enforcement of the Taliban on a ban of opium farming. Like, you're not 
Like they just banned it entirely in 2001. And if you look at a graph of like opium production, it was like stable, stable, stable. Then 2001, junk. I thought Taliban used opium farming to fund their own activities. It, ah, but here, it, this is an interesting story because opium is technically haram. Then the Americans come into the picture. After the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, opium farms boomed, rising almost every single year, partially because the Taliban lost control over like some areas like to warlords that were more like supportive of the U.S. And the U.S.-backed government didn't have the resources or power to regulate opium, and the war had made more people poor and therefore more desperate for cash crops. And occasionally, the Taliban themselves decided to say, you know what, fuck it. We, like, need, we need guns. Well, we like, need money. It's... Like, fuck it. <laughs> we may as well. Let's cash in. Yeah. Now, many warlords who worked with the U.S. against the Taliban were also major players in the opium trade, meaning that many, many soldiers who were deployed in Afghanistan just protected opium fields against the Taliban because the U.S. would get, like, support, they wouldn't get intelligence, uh, and whatever else, like, warlords could provide because, you know, they know the lay of the land, they know people, like, they can build up local support. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so if you, if you wanted to protect freedom, sucks. You protect opium fields. <laughs> that is going to go to make heroin, most likely. Now, after the US pulled out of Afghanistan and the Taliban have restored the emirate, the Taliban have decided to keep the trade going just because so much of Afghanistan's economy is now dependent on the crop. Now, in 2004, and remember the problem has gotten significantly worse since then, it made up 60% of Afghanistan's economy and 75% of the global supply of opium is coming from Afghanistan today. Now, this opium is mostly used for illicit use, right? It, it, it goes to make heroin, primarily, or other, like, semi-synthetic opioids that flood drug markets all around the world. Uh, but opium and poppy flowers are not actually the center of the ongoing opioid epidemic. That's the fault of powerful synthetic opioids, primarily fentanyl. Mm -hmm. While drug users who use heroin have risen in the last few years... Deaths by opioid overdoses have skyrocketed because of fentanyl, which is several hundred times stronger than heroin. And occasionally, you don't actually know that you're getting heroin, that you're getting fentanyl, so you take too much of it, and then because it's so powerful, it can lead to overdosing. Now, a major reason why the numbers have gone up at all is because pharmaceutical companies have marketed synthetic opioids as safer, less addictive, when in fact they are still very dangerous, and still very addictive. Just like the old scientists when they made heroin and morphine. <laughs> it keeps going. <laughs> so anyway. So anyway, opioid epidemic. Um, we made an episode about that. We made that, an episode so about that. Yeah, that. but that's kind of how it starts, right? And then yeah. if you want to know more about how like the, the opioid epidemic like progresses and just more details about that, there's a whole other episode. Um, but we, we won't talk about it in this one. Yeah. But that's super interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I honestly, like, I didn't really know super much about the opium wars other than, like, you know, they wanted opium and then the Brit, you know. Right. I think a lot of people just think of it that way. That's like the British, like, forced the, the, the mm -hmm. Chinese to buy opium. Mm -hmm. and, and that's all they know. But, like, it really has to do with just a trade deficit. Yeah. That, yeah. that you know, Europeans didn't want to pay that much silver. because. Mm -hmm. The European economies were actually kind of struggling a little bit to like keep up with silver demand because all of it's just going to China. <laughs> um, and the war itself is like very complicated and lengthy and boring. Like, it, there's boring as a historian. Am wars I hearing are, this wars right? Are boring, yeah. 
any 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 legit historian is going to say that the wars themselves are boring. Mm-hmm. What leads up to them is very interesting. Mm-hmm. But the wars mm-hmm. themselves are boring. And what happens after is interesting. And what happens after is very interesting. But the, yeah. the battles, I don't care. I guess unless you're like a military historian who's specifically interested in like battle, yeah. uh, like strategy and things like that. Yeah, like I don't... That, I'm not interested in that. Yeah. The guy who uh, actually like enforced the ban though for the emperor, um, he's very interesting because he, he, he straight up like closed a river. <laughs> Like he, I, I don't remember how he did it, but like I, I think maybe he he brought some beavers in. No, so one of <laughs> built it down. So one river that he closed. I don't think it was the Pearl River because the Pearl River is like the the biggest river that was also blockaded. I think I think they used differently for that. But another river, a trading river. I think he just got like a big ass chain from one end to the other. Ships can't pass. What are they gonna do? Go through the chain? You can, they go, that'll sink the ship. Did, did he have to have two people on both banks, like, holding the chain up? You can put it down on the ground. Oh, okay. Like, but then why would they just not, like, push it in the water? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's guarded by Chinese guards. All right, fair. Um, just push the chain in the water, what's the problem? What's the problem? <laughs> the whole war could be avoided if, if you just push the chain. <laughs> Use your brain. Yeah. Um, anyway... I think this is the end of the episode. We need to do a stream. So let's wrap this up. Yes. Uh, uh, speaking we- of, like, if you if you like us so much that you can't get enough <laughs> of us and you want to see us play fun video games, mm-hmm. we, we play video games on twitch.tv slash leechfest. Yeah. Follow us on twi- Twitch. Tweet. On Twitch. <laughs> follow us on Twitch at leechfest. Um, and, you know, I'm going to do the whole spiel that I do at the end. Yes. Um, if you like this episode, if you like this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. There's hella rewards, and we also really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you just want to, like, you know, see what we're up to, follow us on Twitter, uh, Twitter, Leechfest Podcast, mm-hmm. Leechfest Pod. Um, and then you'll also see, like, our personal Twitter accounts if you want to see us, like, shitpost. <laughs> um, otherwise... <laughs> Uh, We hope that you enjoyed this episode and we will catch you next time. Bye.